Hello and welcome to the Wheel of Crime podcast, the podcast where two ladies play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Wheel of Crime. What's the happy hap hap haps and... Um, not much. <laughs> my, my name is Emily. <laughs> my name is Jen. And how has your week been? Mm, my week has been... Okay, it's been kind of uneventful, which is nice for a change, because I've had a lot of car drama lately so it's nice to have no drama (laughs) (laughs) amen to that my car hasn't been able to start properly in two months because of how cold it's been outside so my car got vandalized twice took it to the shop (laughs) brought it home for four hours and then i came outside and somebody literally hit it and then just like left and i was like oh good i'm telling you you're being targeted i i don't even know and now i'm so paranoid so i'm like i need to go check on my car every hour or it's gonna be not okay (laughs) i don't even blame you though honestly i know like it's just like it's uh just you know my life now let's see what did i do this week i i actually ordered a costume for halloween this year already fucking february like (laughs) calm down it's close to march (laughs) what halloween's in october lady i'm i'm excited i ordered it like a week ago and it's supposed to come in in march so So, i'm pretty excited so what are you gonna be in I am going to dress up kind of like the people in Mamma Mia in the spandex jumpsuits. And it's got, it's red and it's purple and it's got bell bottoms and it's wicked awesome. So are you officially joining Donna and the Donnettes then? Or? It's Dynamos, you swine. Whatever. <laughs> I like Donnettes. You claim to be an ABBA fan and you don't even know who Donna and the Dynamos are? Whatever. <laughs> And then, I don't know. What else did I do this week? I feel like, yeah. We're in a different location today. Our other studio. Studio number two. (laughs) We're like a, we're the traveling, we're a traveling band. We are the traveling podcast. Travel pod. Pod. Avil. I don't know what the hell. Podable? I don't know. It's been a long week. I was like, I thought I was tired. Pot apple. Sure. I guess we could explain kind of our new uh, setup, though, for why we're called the Wheel of Crime and what we changed compared to before. Sure. Take it away, Em. Tell those people what's the happity hap hap haps. You are so peppy. Um. <laughs> I'm trying really hard. I'm just fighting exhaustion. <laughs> You're like, I need caffeine. Ooh. But yes, so we have a, uh, a wheel now that we spin, and at the beginning of each episode, we will answer a couple of questions that we have written on our wheel. Uh, these are also questions that you, as a listener, can uh, 
submit on your own, either at our email or to... uh, On social media. Yeah, and uh, if you're lucky, we can add it into our show if you're wanting to ask us a particular question and one of us can spin to answer and that sort of thing. And uh, Take it away, Em. Spin the wheel. I guess we'll start. If you were a character in a sitcom, who would you be? (laughs) (laughs) Well, your life is already a sitcom, so... It used to be, it used to be a lot funnier. It's gotten quite boring now since I've settled a bit, but... You're in, like, season eight and, like, kind of slump. You need to pick things back up for season nine. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) That sounds about right. I don't know. I personally don't know what character I would be, but I know that I've been told a few times that I'm like uh, Rachel from Friends. Mm. I think it's because I had the same haircut as her for like a million bajillion years, so... So what happened this week on Emily's Life is a Sitcom? (laughs) Well, I was away for work in northern Alberta in an undisclosed location, and I was staying in an undisclosed location's building (laughs) (laughs) that comes with many rooms that happen to house a lot of people uh, during the undisclosed location's uh, fires that they had a couple of years ago. The undisclosed (laughs) fires in the undisclosed location. (laughs) The undisclosed natural disaster. Yes. And uh, while I was there, um, I had my phone and my iPad and all of my electronics turned off for the evening. And it was like 1130 at night and a flashing light appeared in my room. And it just like it like happened a couple times. And then I just kind of brushed it off because I was like, oh, it's probably like the haptics on my iPad or something. And then as I was laying there, I was like, I'm pretty sure I turned that off. And then as I'm laying there, I'm freaking myself out. So I'm like, okay, well, now I have to go check if my iPad's on or not. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. And I was like, "Mm, I don't like that. So then I called my fiance, who was staying in the room across from mine. And I was like, so, uh, have you been seeing a flashing light in your room by any chance? Because at this point, I've checked out everything. The TV was unplugged before I went to bed. Like, there's nothing in my room that should be able to do any of that. Mm -hmm. And then he's like... He's like, oh, no, I was asleep. I didn't see anything like that. And I was like, ah, shit. And, he, <laughs> and then he was like, but it's funny that you would say that, though, because I just woke up from having a dream where somebody was trying to call me. And because I was asleep, I couldn't pick up. And I was like, mm, I don't like that either. <laughs> that explanation does not make me feel better. And then the next day we ended up leaving to go stay somewhere else. So it's not even like I could check to see if like maybe there was like a short in my room and one of the light bulbs or something. But it was freaky and it it like happened a couple times throughout the night and i was like mm, yep i don't like that i don't like that either yeah right but my wheel is over it's your I'll, turn i'll spin the wheel of questions on the wheel of crime what is the weirdest thing you've seen in someone else's home <laughs> I like this question. I don't know if this is like the weirdest, because like, but I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> My boyfriend's parents like to keep their syrup in the fridge, and it's always weirded me out. That's like one of the most low key things <laughs> ever. Know. It's like, why does the syrup need to be in the fridge though? What's the point of that? It can go in the cupboard, it's not gonna go bad, it's just sugar. I guess. I don't honestly remember if I keep syrup in the fridge or not. I don't use it that often. Savage! 
Or I know I'm a bad Canadian. I don't use syrup that often. But when I do use it, I use it liberally. (laughs) (laughs) A.K.A. the entire bottle. That's why I don't know if it's in the fridge. There's nothing left to put in the fridge. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Well, here, I'll answer your question if you want to answer my question. We'll just share on both. Okay, okay. Okay, so if you were a sitcom character, who do you think you would be? This is about to get real Canadian. For you Americans out there, because we know you're listening. (laughs) We see the statistics. We see our demographics, and you are American. But um, if you ever see the show... There's also way more Americans than there are Canadians, but like... Whatever. (laughs) Um, If you've ever seen the show 16, it's like an animated Mm -hmm. show that like I used to watch as a child. Yeah. I was re-watching it recently. Yeah. And I realized I grew up to be Wyatt. Really? He drinks coffee. He's concerned about the environment. He's always stressed out. He does work in a music store. And like, me and John were just watching it. And he's like, why are you Wyatt now? I don't know if that counts as a sitcom, though. Okay, if we're going for a sitcom, I would be Chelsea from That's So Raven. I have never seen That's So Raven, so I can't say anything. I mean, I, I feel like I'm not stupid and i feel like she comes across as stupid in the show but i'm like i'm not an idiot but (laughs) but she's a vegetarian and i feel like that's like people like oh you're a vegetarian Mm." Mm. so uh what's the weirdest thing you've seen in someone else's home i've seen a couple okay one of them is in my grandpa's it wasn't in his home it's in his garage but i know it was in his house at one point because it really creeped me out. But he has a replica of a human skull that's, like, decorative. Is it like those uh, Japanese skulls from our World War II crimes? I'm not going to lie. When we covered that episode, that was my first thought. I was like, mm, I am not going to ask my grandpa about that. <laughs> hey, Gramps, did you commit a war crime? <laughs> <laughs> what do you know about uh, Japanese skulls? But, uh, or... I remember once when I was in high school, I had a friend of mine who was dating this really, really weird guy. And I went over, I had to go over to his house at some point because I think she, she was driving him and I was hanging out with them and we had to stop by his house for him to like pick something up. Okay. And he was a weird guy. Okay. He like. I know. Anyways, so <laughs> we go into his house and his parents are like the nicest people ever because it was in the morning. So they like fed us breakfast and everything. And then we went downstairs into his room and he had knives sticking out of the walls. And that sounds like a serial killer in the making. Uh huh. And he had a Tinkerbell decal on his mirror. <laughs> Wait a minute. A Tinkerbell decal on his mirror that he had like destroyed strategically and he drew her with a knife oh my god why is he a sociopath it was the weirdest thing i've seen in my whole life i was like this is interesting home decor what's a text that you've accidentally sent to somebody i was texting you (laughs) (laughs) okay and do you remember that like gif i sent you where it was like cool beans and it had like the two thumbs up yeah i was at work that day Okay. <laughs> and we have a group chat uh, w- with, like, the crew that we travel with. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys that I was working with had just sent a text into the group 
where he's like, oh, there's something wrong uh, with this machine I'm working on. He had a picture and he's like, uh, would anybody, uh, Andrew, are you interested in coming down and helping out? Like, you know, just stuff. And my response was, cool beans! <laughs> Thumbs up. And I was like, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> Nobody said anything. Oh my God. Nobody. There's terrible. five people in this group message. Not a single person said anything. And I was like, that's how you know you fucked up real bad. Uh-huh. What about you? I feel like it's been a while since I've accidentally texted somebody. But, like, the last one I can remember is when I was going to uh, Red Deer College. Mm-hmm. And I texted John. I was texting John, like, oh, hurry up and get your cute little butt over here. But I accidentally sent it to my mom. <laughs> and she's like... I can't remember how she responded because this was years ago. That's she, the worst thing ever. And she responded. She's like, okay, honey. <laughs> I was mortified. I was like, oh, good. Like, oh, my God. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, my God. Okay, one more time. We're going to celebrate. What was your childhood nickname? Mine, my, like, first one was Penny because my name is... Jennifer, so then people get to Jenny, and then my babysitter nicknamed me Penny because of Jenny, Penny, they rhyme. Well, one of my cousins used to call me his enemy. That's how I should refer to you from now on. Uh Uh-huh, but you see, because my name is Emily, right, and he couldn't pronounce M, so he's like, it's my enemy! But the best part was, nobody corrected him. They're like, yep, your enemy will be here soon. (laughs) This is your cousin, Enemy! Well, my nickname for you when we were in middle school, do you remember what it was? You had so many. I don't even remember. Emshelly. And your Mm. dad thought it was hilarious. He still does. Okay. Time for the crime. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So this week we are covering crimes that made the internet angry. Do you have a description for us, Emshelly? Okay. That is not happening. (laughs) Um, give us five stars if you think that should happen. <laughs> give us five stars if you never want to hear that name ever again. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Uh, but okay, so for crimes by the internet angry, I really had to go fishing for a definition here. So instead I found a term called the internet pitchfork mob. Okay. So uh, it's the internet version of a torch and pitchfork mob. So a group of angry people raging about a problem that rapidly gains supporters, taking over topics, comment sections, and product reviews with rage posts, tramples anyone who doesn't agree mercilessly, commonly occurs in response to controversial topics or unpopular actions by corporations and or the government. I don't know if you remember, because we talked about who we were going to be covering, or at least uh, the, uh, the, 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 the focus of our topics. Yes. Okay, so... You're looking at me like, I don't remember. It's fine. I'll keep going. Um, I am covering Brock Turner. Brock Turner is this guy who I remember... I picked this one because I remember on Facebook seeing stuff about this constantly, like all the time because it like stuff was either being shared or reshared or corrected and shared or they were getting updates and they were being shared and that sort of thing. And it did have a lot of controversy behind it, which is one of the reasons why I picked it, but... I'm not going to lie, as I'm reading through this, this is not a fun one, guys. I'm not talking about gremlins. 
No gremlins here. I am not talking about the usual like wheel stuff. This is a crime crime episode. <clears throat> so just after 1 a.m. on January 18th, 2015, law enforcement officers responded to a report of an unconscious female in a field near the Kappa Alpha Fraternity House, according to the sentencing memo. They found the victim on the ground in a fetal position behind a garbage dumpster. She was breathing but unresponsive. Her dress was pulled uh, up over her waist and her underwear was on the ground. Her hair was disheveled and covered with pine needles. About 25 yards away, two men, passerbys, or a passerby, had pinned down and restrained a young man who was later identified as Brock Turner. We found him on top of the girl, one of the men said. Turner smelled of alcohol as he was handcuffed. One of the men later told authorities that Turner had been on top of the motionless woman. Hey, she's fucking unconscious, one of the men yelled. Turner managed to get away briefly, but the man tripped and later tackled him. Turner was held down until deputies arrived. After the assault, detectives saw a text message on Turner's cell phone referring to breasts, according to the sentencing memo. The message said, Whose tits that? And it was sent in the early morning hours of the day of the assault. Before that text, a photo was sent to a group via a third-party app called GroupMe. Investigators obtained a search warrant for Turner's phone, but were unable to retrieve the alleged photo because the GroupMe messages were... Uh, or, sorry, because GroupMe images are not stored on the phone and can be deleted by a third member in the group, the document said. So basically, one of the asshole friends saw that he was in trouble and he deleted the photo. What a nice guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Real winners here, guys. A witness told investigators that the day of the assault, he saw a female subject lying on the ground behind the dumpster. He also noticed a male subject standing over her with a cell phone. The cell phone had a bright light pointed in the direction of the female using either a flashlight app in his phone or his built-in flash. According to the probation document, Turner told deputies that he'd walked away from the frat house with the victim and they kissed. They ended up on the ground where he removed the victim's underwear. Oh yeah, this is why we have a disclaimer, guys, also, by the way. This is about to get very, like, not nice. Very triggery. Yes, this entire episode is very triggery. Where he removed the victim's underwear and digitally penetrated her for about five minutes. Turner then told the deputies he denied taking his pants off and said his penis was never exposed. At this point, the victim was completely unresponsive. When law enforcement arrived, one of the deputies in a loud voice asked the victim several times, Can you hear me? And there was no response. Paramedics tried the shake and shout technique and applied a physical pain stimulant. Still no response. She vomited once but didn't regain consciousness. In an ambulance later, a deputy tried to wake her up repeatedly without success, and there was still no response after an EMT stuck an IV needle into the young woman's arm. The victim finally regained consciousness about 4.15 a.m. at the hospital. Later that morning, doctors said that her blood alcohol concentration was 0.12% and estimated her intoxication level at the time of the assault to be about 0.22%. So the sentencing memo said that the victim's sister was caught completely off guard when Turner tried to kiss her in the night of the or sorry the night of the the assault so he tried to go after her uh her sister initially gross uh-huh so she alerted a friend after turner grabbed her waist and later picked him out of a lineup as the aggressive man at the party after being twice rejected by her sister turner went after the victim when she was alone and inebriated nice what a classy guy so turner took the victim to a dimly lit isolated area and sexually assaulted her behind a dumpster this behavior is not typical assaultive behavior that you find on campus but it is more akin to a predator who is searching for prey the prosecutor wrote another woman told investigators that turner was grabby and touchy 
putting his hands on her waist, stomach, and upper thighs when she danced with him at the fraternity party about a week before the sexual assault happened. In the sentencing memo, the state said that Turner lied to the probation department about his use of drugs. He implied that it was his first time drinking, or sorry, he implied that his first time drinking was at a swim team party in Stanford. Coming from a small town in Ohio, I never really experienced celebrating or partying that involved alcohol, Turner told a probation officer adding that he was an inexperienced drinker and a party-goer. But the evidence on Turner's cell phone showed that he was a drinker who partied regularly since high school, including the use of marijuana and other drugs. He was not truthful with the probation department or this court about his experience with drinking and partying, much like he was not truthful with the aftermath after being caught by the Good Samaritans. In mid-November 2014, Turner and a group of men were seen by a deputy walking on campus and drinking beer. When the deputy approached the man, they ran away according to the sentencing memo. Stop, police, the deputy yelled several times, and the men kept running. Another deputy cut off the men and ordered them on the ground. Turner later admitted that he had tried to hide his beard because he was under 21 at the time. Turner had a fake driver's license in his possession. After Turner's arrest in connection of the 2015 sexual assault, investigators found evidence of excessive drinking and using of drugs on his cell phone. A photo of him smoking from a pipe, a close-up shot of a bong, and a video of Turner taking a bong hit while... Uh, sipping a bottle of liquor. In addition, text messages indicated Turner used drugs while in high school and at Stanford, including references to acid as well as a a highly concentrated and potent form of marijuana. Mr. Turner was convicted of three counts of felony sexual assault, and he was released from jail after serving just three months. So this is kind of jumping ahead, right? Because now we have all the details. Now we're at this point where we kind of know what happens or came of this, right? So basically, he sexually assaulted somebody and... After all of the court stuff, he ended up going to jail for felony sexual assault, but only for three months. Attorney Eric Molfap told a California appeals court in San Jose on Tuesday that Mr. Turner's conviction should be overturned due to lack of evidence. So Mr. Molfap told the panel that Mr. Turner had only wanted to engage in sexual outer course with the victim known as Emily Doe. The attorney defined outer course as a version of safe sex that does not involve vaginal sex, according to a local NBC affiliate. That's such bullshit. Especially since they, at this point, already have evidence that he had actually penetrated her. And because people, like, saw him... That's another thing, too. They were two witnesses to what had happened. They were able to provide evidence that, yes, because um, I remember reading that he... They actually found, like, pine needles, like, inside of her. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't something that's up for question. And they're saying, oh, it, she was never penetrated. It doesn't, you know. It didn't happen. Didn't happen. You can't prove it. But, <sighs> okay, I'll keep going. I'm telling you, so angry. Super angry. I understand the internet for this one. <sighs> it, it actually makes me so angry. It makes me kind of nauseous almost. Do you understand that? I really understand that because it's like, it's just scary thinking that like somebody could do, would do something like to, that to you on purpose when you're unconscious. Mm-hmm. Yep. The attorney noted that Mr. Turner was not naked and that his genitals were not exposed when he was found on top of his victim. Mr. Turner, or blah, blah, blah. Mr. Turner has previously mentioned, admitted to partially undressing and digitally penetrating the woman. So he even already admitted to that. Yeah. So you can't call that outer course. When you've literally already admitted to it. Right. No. Sorry, but no. Sorry, don't think so. Mr. Malthap uh, also called into question the woman's level of intoxication. Another thing that makes me angry, it does not matter the condition of the victim 
They're the victim because they were assaulted. It's like saying like, oh, what was she wearing? Like, irrelevant. Saying there was, I love when I get angry though. I get really, really calm. Believe me, guys, I am so fired up about this. You don't even know. (laughs) Saying there was no evidence at what point she went from being incapacitated from alcohol to loss of consciousness, according to CNN. The three judges on the panel appeared unimpressed by Mr. Malthaf's argument, according to the Associated Press, for obvious reasons. I absolutely don't understand what you're talking about, Justice Franklin Elias said, adding that the law requires the jury verdict to be honored. Assistant Attorney General Alicia Carlisle, representing the state of California, said that Mr. Malthaf had presented a far-fetched version of the events, and she noted that the bystanders could tell from 30 feet away that the victim was unconscious, citing the trial testimony. She's saying that basically that even the the you know good samaritans who saw what was going on could tell that she was unconscious and he's trying to say that he didn't know she was unconscious exactly like there's no way he's just trying to like reduce the blame that gets put on him you know what he is he's a weasel he's an actual weasel he even looks like a weasel that's what i'm saying he's behaving like a weasel and he looks like a weasel (laughs) attorneys for mr weasel filed the appeal in december of last year in an attempt to revoke the requirement that he register as a sex offender for life. Mr. Turner's six-month conviction in 2016 sparked a massive backlash against Judge Aaron Persky, who many said that was too lenient on the 19-year-old star athlete. The judge was voted off the bench by the Santa Clara County residents in June following a years-long activist campaign. The trial also ignited a national debate on the treatment of sexual assault victims. Emily Doe's emotional testimony was read aloud in court and shared widely online. Okay, so this next part... I'm just going to give another trigger warning here. Like, uh, I know already that when you say Brock Turner, a lot of people who are a little more sensitive to that content probably already tuned out. But for anybody here who's really, like, emotionally impacted mm-hmm. by victim statements, I recommend you probably just skip through this part. It's, it's, it gets sad and intense. So I'll just fire ahead. Fire on away, Emily. This is what Emily Doe's testimony was. And this was what was read aloud in court. Your Honor, if it is all right, for the majority of the statement, I would like to address the defendant directly. You don't know me, but you've been inside me. And that's why we're here today. On January 17th, 2015, it was a quiet Saturday night at home. My dad had made some dinner and I sat at the table with my younger sister who was visiting for the weekend. I was working full-time and it was approaching my bedtime. I planned to stay at home by myself, watch some TV and read, while she went to a party with her friends. Then, I decided it was my only night with her and I had nothing better to do, so why not? There's a dumb party ten minutes from my house. I would go, dance like a fool, and embarrass my younger sister. On the way there, I joked that uh, undergrad guys would have braces. My sister teased me for wearing a beige cardigan to a frat party like a librarian. I called myself Big Mama because I knew I'd be the oldest one there. I made silly faces, I let my guard down, and drank liquor too fast, not factoring in that my tolerance had significantly lowered since college. The next thing I remember, I was in a gurney in a hallway. I had dried blood and bandages on the backs of my hands and elbows. I had thought that maybe I had fallen and I was in an admin office on campus. I was very calm and wondering where my sister was. A deputy explained that I had been assaulted. I still remained calm, assured that he was speaking to the wrong person. I knew no one at this party. When I was finally allowed to use the restroom, I pulled down the hospital pants they had given me, went to pull down my underwear, and felt nothing. I still remember the feeling of my hands touching my skin and grabbing nothing. I looked down and there was nothing. The thin piece of fabric, the only thing between my vagina and anything else, was missing and everything inside me was silenced. 
I still don't have words for that feeling. In order to keep breathing, I thought that maybe the policeman used scissors to cut them off for evidence. Then I felt pine needles scratching the back of my neck and started to pull them out of my hair. I thought that maybe the pine needles had fallen from a tree onto my head. My brain was talking my gut into not collapsing because my gut was saying, help me, help me. I shuffled from room to room with a blanket wrapped around me, pine needles trailing behind me, and I left a little pile of them in every room, in every room that I sat in. I was asked to sign papers that said rape victim. I thought something had really happened. My clothes were confiscated and I stood naked while nurses held a ruler to various abrasions on my body and photographed them. The three of us worked to comb the pine needles out of my hair and six hands to fill one paper bag. To calm me down, they said, it's just flora and fauna, flora and fauna. I had multiple swabs inserted into my vagina and anus, needles for shots, pills, had a Nikon pointed right into my spread legs. I had long pointed beaks inside me and I had my vagina smeared with a cold blue paint to check for abrasions. After a few hours of this, they let me shower. I stood there examining my body beneath the stream of water and decided, I don't want my body anymore. I was terrified of it and I didn't know what had, what had been in it, if it had been contaminated, who had touched it. I wanted to take off my body like a jacket and leave it at the hospital with everything else. On that morning, all I was told was that I had been found behind a dumpster, potentially pen uh, penetrated by a stranger, and that I should get retested for HIV because results don't always show immediately. But for now, I should go home and get back to my normal life. Imagine stepping back into the world with only that information. They gave me huge hugs and I walked out of the hospital into the parking lot wearing the new sweatshirt and sweatpants they provided me, as they had only allowed me to keep my necklace and my shoes. My sister picked me up, face wet from tears and contorted in anguish. Instinctively and immediately, I wanted to take her pain. Or, uh, sorry, take away her pain. I smiled at her. I told her to look at me. I'm right here. It's okay. Everything's okay. I'm right here. My hair is washed and cleaned, and they gave me the strangest shampoo. Calm down and look at me. Look at these funny new sweatpants and sweatshirt. I look like a PE teacher. Let's go home. Let's eat something. She didn't know that beneath my sweatsuit, I had scratches and bandages on my skin, and my vagina was sore and had become a strange dark color from all the prodding. My underwear was missing, and I felt too empty to continue speaking. That I was also afraid, and that I was also devastated. That day, we drove from home, and for hours in silence, my younger sister held me. My boyfriend did not know what had happened, but called that day and said, I was really worried about you last night. You scared me. Did you make it home okay? I was horrified. That's when I learned I had called him that night in my blackout, left an incomprehensible voicemail, and that we'd also spoken on the phone, but I was slurring so heavily that he was scared for me, and he repeatedly told me to go find my sister. Again, he asked me, what happened last night? Did you make it home okay? I said yes and hung up to cry. I wasn't ready to tell my boyfriend or my parents that actually I may have been raped behind a dumpster, and I don't know by who, when, or how. If I had told them, I would see the fear on their faces, and mine would multiply by tenfold, so instead I pretended that the whole thing wasn't real. I tried to push it out of my mind, but it was so heavy I didn't talk, I didn't eat, I didn't sleep, I didn't interact with anybody. After work, I would drive to a secluded place to scream. I didn't talk, I didn't eat, I didn't sleep. I didn't interact with anybody, and I became isolated from the ones I love most. For over a week after the incident, I didn't get any calls or updates about that night or what had happened to me. The only symbol that proved that I that it hadn't been just a bad dream was the sweatshirt from the hospital in my drawer. One day while I was at work scrolling through the news on my phone, it came across in an article. In it, 
I read and learned for the first time about how I was found unconscious with my hair disheveled, long necklace wrapped around my neck, my bra pulled out of my dress, my dress pulled off of my shoulders and pulled all the way up to my waist, and that I was found butt naked all the way down to my boots, my legs spread apart, and that I had been penetrated by a foreign object by someone I did not recognize. And this is how I learned what happened to me. Sitting at my desk, reading at the news at work. I learned what happened to me the same time everybody else in the world, world learned what happened to me. That's when the pine needles in my hair made sense. They didn't fall from a tree. He had taken off my underwear. His fingers had been inside me and I don't even know this person. I still don't know this person. When I read about me like this, I I said, this can't be me and this can't be me. I could not digest or accept any of this information. I could not imagine my family having to read about this online. I kept reading. In the next paragraph, I read something I will never forgive. I read that according to him, I liked it. I liked it. Again, I do not have the words for these feelings. And then... At the bottom of the article, after I learned about the graphic details of my own sexual assault, the article listed his swimming times. I feel like I haven't breathed since you started reading that. I barely have. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Every time I read this, it makes me want to throw up. Ugh. Okay. It's like if you were to read an article where a car was hit and found dented in a ditch, but maybe the car enjoyed being hit. Maybe the other car didn't mean to hit it. Just bump it up a little bit. Cars get in accidents all the time. People aren't always paying attention. Can we really say who's at fault? And then at the bottom of the article, after I learned about the graphic details of my own sexual assault, the article listed his swimming times. She was found breathing, unresponsive, with her underwear six inches away from her bare stomach, curled in a fetal position. By the way, he's really good at swimming. Throw my mile time and that's what we're doing. I'm good at cooking. Put that in there. I think the end is where you list your extracurriculars to cancel out all the sickening things that have happened. The night that the news came out, I sat my parents down and I told them that I had been assaulted. To not look at the news because it's really upsetting and just to know that I'm okay, I'm right here, and I'm okay. But halfway through telling them, my mom had to hold me up because I couldn't stand anymore. The night after it happened, he said that he didn't know my name and that he wouldn't be able to identify my face in a lineup, didn't mention any dialogue between us, no words, only dancing and kissing. Dancing is a cute term. Was it snapping fingers and a twirling dance or just bodies grinding up against each other in a crowded room? I wonder if kissing was just faces sloppily pressed up against each other? When the detective asked if he had planned on taking me back to his dorm, he said no. When the detective asked how we ended up behind the dumpster, he said he didn't know. He admitted to kissing other girls at that party, one of whom was my own sister who had pushed him away. He admitted to wanting to hook up with somebody, and I was the wounded antelope of the herd, completely alone and vulnerable, physically unable to fend for myself, and he chose me. Sometimes I think if I hadn't gone, then this never would have happened. But then I realized it would have happened just as somebody else. You were about to enter four years of access to drunk girls and parties, and if this is the foot you started off on, then it is right that you did not continue. The night after it happened, he said he thought I liked it because I rubbed his back. A back rub. Never mentioned me voicing consent, never mentioned us even speaking. A back rub. One more time, in public news, I learned that my ass and vagina were completely exposed outside. My breasts had been groped, fingers had been jabbed inside of me along with pine needles and debris. My bare skin and head had been rubbing against the ground behind a dumpster where an erect freshman was humping my half-naked unconscious body. But I don't remember, so how do I prove that I didn't like it? I thought there's no way that this is going to go to trial. There were witnesses. There was dirt in my body. He ran, but he was caught. He's going to settle, formally apologize, and we'll both move on. Instead, I was told he hired a powerful attorney, expert witnesses, 
Private investigators were all going to try and find details about my personal life to use against me, find loopholes in my story to invalidate me and my sister, in order to show that the sexual assault was in fact a misunderstanding, that he was going to do it, uh, go to any length to convince the world that he had been simply confused. I was not only told that I was assaulted, I was told that because I couldn't remember, I technically could not prove that it was unwanted, and that distorted me, damaged me, almost broke me. It is the saddest type of confusion to be told I was assaulted and nearly raped, blatantly out in the open, but we don't know if that counts as assault yet. I had to fight for an entire year to make it clear that it was something wrong with the situation. I was pummeled with the narrow pointed questions that dissected my personal life, love life, past life, family life, inane questions, accumulating trivial details to try and find an excuse for this guy who had me half naked before even bothering to ask for my name. When I was told to prepare in case we didn't win, I said, I can't prepare for that. He was guilty the minute I woke up. Nobody can talk to me, talk me out of the hurt he caused me. Worse of all, I was warned because he now knows you don't remember. He's going to get to write the script. He can say whatever he wants and nobody can contest it. I had no power, I had no voice, and I was defenseless. My memory loss would be used against me. My testimony was weak, perhaps incomplete, and it was and I was made to believe that perhaps that was not that I was not enough to win this. His attorney constantly reminded the jury, the only one we can believe is Brock, because she doesn't remember. That helplessness was traumatizing. Instead of taking time to heal, I was taking time to recall the night in excruciating detail in order to prepare for the attorney's questions that would be invasive, aggressive, and designed to steer me off course, to contradict myself, my sister, phrased in ways to manipulate my answers. Instead of of his attorney saying, did you notice any abrasions? He said, you didn't notice any abrasions, right? This is a game of strategy, as if I could be tricked out of my own worth. The sexual assault had been so clear, but instead, here I was at trial answering questions like, How old are you? How much do you weigh? What did you eat that day? Well, what did you have for dinner? Who made dinner? Did you drink with dinner? No, not even water? When did you drink? How much of how much did you drink? What container did you drink out of? Who gave you the drink? How much do you usually drink? Who dropped you off at this party? At what time? But where exactly? What were you wearing? Why were you going to this party? What'd you do when you got there? Are you sure you did that? But what time did you do that at? What does this text mean? Who were you texting? When did you urinate? Where did you urinate? With whom did you urinate outside? Was your phone on silent when your sister called? Do you remember silencing it? Really? Because on page 53, I'd like to point out that you said it was set to ring. Did you drink in college? You said you were a party animal. How many times did you black out? Did you party at frats? Were you serious with your boyfriend? Are you sexually active with him? When did you start dating? Would you ever cheat? Do you have a history of cheating? What do you mean when you said you want to reward him? Do you remember what time you woke up? Were you wearing your cardigan? What color was your cardigan? Do you remember any more from that night? No? Okay, well... We'll let Brock fill it in. I was pummeled with narrowed, pointed questions that dissected my personal life, love life, past life, family life. After the physical assault, I was assaulted with questions designed to attack me to say, see, her facts don't line up. She's out of her mind. She's practically an alcoholic. She probably wanted to hook up. He's like an athlete, right? They were both drunk. Whatever. The hospital stuff she remembers is after the fact. Why would you take it into account? Brock has a lot at stake, so he's having a really hard time right now. And then when it came time for him to testify and I learned what it meant to be re-victimized, I want to remind you that the night after it happened, he said he was never planning to take me back to his dorm. He said he didn't 
didn't know why we were behind a dumpster. He got up to leave because he wasn't feeling well, and then he was suddenly chased and attacked. And then he learned I couldn't remember. So one year later, as predicted, a new dialogue emerged. Brock had a strange new story, almost sounded like a poorly written young adult novel with kissing and dancing and hand-holding and lovingly tumbling onto the ground. And most importantly, in this new story, there was suddenly consent. One year after the incident, he remembered, oh yeah, by the way, she actually said yes to everything. So I just shrugged for everybody who's listening. (laughs) He said he had asked if I wanted to dance. Apparently, I said yes. He asked if I wanted to go to his dorm, and I said yes. Then he asked if he could finger me, and I said yes. Most guys don't ask, can I finger you? Usually there's a natural progression of things unfolding consensually, not a Q&A, but apparently I granted full permission. He's in the clear. Even in his story, I only said a total of three words, yes, 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 before he had me half naked on the ground. Future reference, if you were confused about whether a girl can consent, see if she can speak an entire sentence. You couldn't even do that. Just one coherent string of words. Where was the confusion? This is common sense, human decency. According to him, the only reason we were on the ground was because I fell down. Note, if a girl falls down, help her get back up. If she is too drunk to even walk and falls down, do not mount her, hump her, take off her underwear, and insert your hand inside of her vagina. If a girl falls down, help her up. If she's wearing a cardigan over her dress, don't take it off so you can touch her breasts. Maybe she is cold. Maybe that's why she wore the cardigan. Next in the story, two Swedes on bicycles approached you and you ran. When they tackled you, why didn't you say, stop, everything's okay, go ask her, she's right over there, she'll tell you. I mean, you had just asked for my consent, right? I was awake, right? When the policeman arrived and interviewed the evil Swede who attacked you, he was crying so hard he couldn't speak because of what he had seen. Your attorney had repeatedly pointed out, well, we don't know exactly when she became unconscious. And you're right. Maybe I was still fluttering my eyes and I wasn't completely limp yet. That there was never, but that was never the point. I was too drunk to speak English, too drunk to consent way before I even hit the ground. I should have never been touched in the first place. Brock stated, at no time did I see that she was not responding. If at any time I thought that she was not responding, I would have stopped immediately. Here's the thing. If your plan was to stop only when I became unresponsive, then you still don't understand. You didn't even stop when I was unconscious anyways. Someone else stopped you. Two guys on bikes noticed I wasn't moving in the dark and had to tackle you. How did you not notice while you were on top of me? You said you would have stopped and gotten help. You say that, but I want you to explain how you would have helped me. Step by step. Walk me through this. I want to know. If those evil Swedes had not found me, how would the night have played out? I am asking you, would you have pulled my underwear back up over my boots, untangled the necklace wrapped around my neck, closed my legs, covered me, picked the pine needles from my hair, asked if the abrasions were on my neck and bottom hurt? Would you then go find a friend and say, will you help? me get her somewhere warm and soft. I don't sleep when I think about the way it would have gone if those two guys had never come. What would have happened to me? That's what you'll never have a good answer for. Then that's why you can't explain even after a year. On top of all this, he claimed that I orgasmed after one minute of digital penetration. The nurse said that there had been abrasions, lacerations, and dirt in my genitalia. Was that before or after I came? To sit under oath and inform all of us that yes, I wanted it, yes, I permitted it, and that you were the true victim attacked by Swedes for reasons unknown to you is appalling, is demented, is selfish, and is damaging. Is enough to be suffering, it is another to have someone ruthlessly working to diminish the gravity of validity of this suffering. My family had to see pictures of my head strapped to a gurney full of pine needles, of my body in the dirt with my eyes closed, hair messed up, limbs bent, and dress hiked up. And even after that, my family had to listen to your attorney say that the pictures were after the fact and that we can dismiss them. To say yes, her nurse confirmed that there was redness and abrasions inside of her, significant trauma to her genitalia, but that's what happens when you finger somebody, and he's already admitted to that. To listen to your attorney attempt to paint 
paint a picture of me, the face of girls gone wild, as if somehow that would make it so that I had this coming for me. To listen to him say that I had sounded drunk on the phone because I'm silly and that's my goofy way of speaking. To point out that in the voicemail that I said I would reward my boyfriend and we all know what I was thinking. I assure you my rewards program is non-transferable, especially to any nameless man that approaches me. This is not a story of another drunk college hookup with poor decision making. Assault is not an accident. He has done irreversible damage to me and my family during the trial and we've sat silently listening to him shape the evening. But in the end, his unsupported statements and his attorney's twisted logic fooled no one. The truth won and the truth spoke for itself. You are guilty. Twelve jurors convicted you guilty of three felony counts beyond reasonable doubt. That's 12 votes per count, 30 yet... 36 yeses confirming guilt and that's 100% ununanimous guilt. And I thought it would be finally over, that he would own up to what he did, truly apologize, and that we would both move on and get better. Then I read your statement. If you are hoping that one of my organs will implode from anger and that I will die, I'm almost there. You are very, very close. Somehow you still don't get it. Somehow you still sound confused. I will now read portions of the defense statement and respond to them. You said being drunk, I couldn't make the best decisions and neither could she. Alcohol is not an excuse. Is it a factor? Yes. But alcohol was not the one who stripped me, fingered me, and had my head dragged against the ground with me almost fully naked. Having too much to drink uh, was an amateur mistake that I admit to, but it is not criminal. Everyone in this room has had a night where they've regretted drinking too much or knows someone close to them who has had a night where they've regretted drinking too much. Regretting drinking is not the same as regretting sexual assault. We were both drunk. The difference is that I did not take your pants and underwear off, touch you inappropriately, and then run away. That's the difference. You said if I wanted to get to know her, I should have asked for her number rather than asking her to go back to my room. I'm not mad because you didn't ask for my number. Even if you did know me, I would not want to be in this situation. My own boyfriend knows me, but if he asked to finger me behind a dumpster, I would slap him. Because nobody wants to be in that situation. Nobody. I don't care if you know their phone number or not. You said I stupidly thought it was okay to do what everyone was doing around me, which was drinking, and I was wrong. Again, you were not wrong for drinking. Everyone around you was not sexually assaulting me. You were wrong for doing what nobody else was doing, which was pushing your erect dick in your pants against my naked defenseless body concealed in a dark area where partygoers could not see me or protect me, and that my own sister couldn't find me. Sipping fireball is not your crime. Peeling off and discarding my underwear like a candy wrapper to insert your finger into my body, this is where you went wrong, and this is why I'm explaining this. You said during the trial that I didn't want to victimize her at all. That was just my attorney and his way of approaching the case. Your attorney is not your scapegoat. Scapegoat, sorry. Uh, he rep- represents you. Did your attorney say some incredulously infuriating, degrading things? Absolutely. He said you had an erection because it was cold. You said you said you were in the process of establishing a program for high school and college students in which you speak about your experience to speak out against the college campus drinking culture and the sexual promiscuity that, that goes along with it. Campus drinking culture. That's what we're speaking out against? You think that that's what I've ha- had to spend the last year fighting for? Not awareness about campus sexual assault or rape or learning to recognize consent? Campus drinking culture. Down with Jack Daniels. Down with Sky Vodka. If you want to talk to people about drinking, go to an AA meeting. You realize having a drinking problem is different than drinking and then forcefully trying to have sex with somebody? Show men how to respect women, not how to drink less. Drinking culture and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with it goes along with that like a side effect. 
like fries on the side of your order? Where does promiscuity even come into play? I don't see headlines that read, Brock Turner, guilty of drinking too much and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Campus sexual assault. That's your first PowerPoint slide. Rest assured, if you fail to fix the topic of your talk, I will follow you to every school you go to and I will give a follow-up presentation. I wish she would. I wish she would too. Oh, God. Uh, Lastly, you said, I want to show people that one night of drinking can ruin a life. A life. One life. Yours. You forgot about mine. Let me rephrase that for you. I want to show people that one night of drinking can ruin two lives. You and me. You are the cause. I am the effect. You've dragged me through this hell with you. Dipped me back into that night again and again. You knocked down both of our towers. I collapsed at the same time you did. If you think I was spared, I came out unscathed, that today I'll ride off into the sunset while you suffer the greatest blow, you're mistaken. Nobody wins. We all have been devastated. We've all been trying to find some meaning in all of this suffering. Your damage was concrete, stripped of titles, degrees, enrollment. My damage was internal, unseen, and I carry it with me. You took away my worth my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice until today. See, one thing we have in common is that we were both unable to get up in the morning. I am no stranger to suffering. You made me a victim. In newspapers, my name was unconscious intoxicated woman. 10 syllables and nothing more than that. For a while, I believed that's all I was. I had to force myself to relearn my real name, my identity, to relearn that this is not all who I am. That I am not just a drunk victim at a frat party found behind a dumpster while you are the all-American swimmer at the top university, innocent and until proving guilty, with so much at stake. I am a human being who has been irreversibly hurt. My life was put on hold for a year, waiting to figure out if I was worth something. My independence, natural joy, gentleness, and steady lifestyle I had been enjoying became distorted beyond recognition. I became closed off, angry, self-deprecating, tired, irritable, empty. The isolation at times was unbearable. You cannot give me back the life I had before that night either. While you worry about your shattered reputation, I refrigerated spoons every night so that when I woke up and my eyes were puffy from crying, that I would hold the spoons to my eyes to lessen the swelling so that I could see. I showed up an hour late to work every morning, excused myself to go cry in the stairwells, and I can tell you all the best, best, I can tell you all the best places in that building to cry where no one can hear you. The pain became so bad that I had to explain the private details to my boss to let her know why I was leaving. I needed time because continuing day to day was not possible. I used my savings to go as far away as I could possibly be, and I did not return uh, to work full-time as I knew I'd have to take weeks off in the future for hearing and trial that that were having to constantly be rescheduled. My life was put on hold for over a year. My structure had collapsed. I can't sleep alone at night without having a light on like a five-year-old because I have nightmares of being touched where I cannot wake up. I did this thing where I waited until the sun came up and I felt safe enough to sleep. For three months, I went to bed at six o'clock in the morning. I used to pride myself on independence. Now I'm afraid to go on walks in the evening, to attend social events with drinking among friends where I should be a comfortable thing. I've become a little barnacle always needing to be at somebody's side, to have my boyfriend standing next to me, sleeping beside me, protecting me. It is embarrassing how feeble I feel, how timidly I move through this life, always guarded, always ready to defend myself, ready to be angry. You have no idea how hard I have worked to rebuild parts of me that are still weak. It took me eight months to even talk about what had happened. I could no longer connect with friends, with everyone around me. I would scream at my boyfriend, my own family, whenever they brought it up. You never let me forget what happened to me. At the end of the hearing, the trial, I was too tired to speak. I would leave drained, silent, and I would go home and turn off my phone for days, and I would not speak. 
You bought, you bought me a ticket to a planet where I lived by myself. Every time a new article co- came out, I lived with the paranoia that my entire hometown would find out and know me as the girl who got assaulted. I didn't want anyone's pity, and I am still learning to accept victim as a part of my identity. You made my own hometown an uncomfortable place to be. You cannot give me back my sleepless nights. The way I have broken down sobbing uncontrollably. If I am watching a movie where a woman is harmed, to say it lightly, this experience has expanded my empathy for other victims. I have lost weight from stress. When people would comment, I told them I've been running a lot lately. There are times I did not want to be touched. I have had to relearn that I am not fragile and that I am capable, I am wholesome, and not just livid and weak. When I see my younger sister hurting, when she's unable to keep up in school, when she's deprived of joy, when she's not sleeping, when she's crying so hard on the phone she can barely breathe, telling me over and over again that she's sorry for leaving me alone that night, sorry, 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 when she feels more guilt than you, then I do not forgive you. That night I called her to try and find her, but you found me first. Your attorney's closing statement began, her sister said she was fine, and who knows her better than her sister? You tried to use my own sister against me. Your points of attack were so weak and so low it was almost embarrassing. You do not touch her. You should have never done this to me. Secondly, you should have never made me fight so long to tell you you should have never done this to me. But here we are, the damage is done, no one can undo it, and now we both have a choice. We can let this destroy us, I can remain angry and hurt, and you can be in denial, or we can face it head on. I accept the pain, you accept the punishment, and we move on. Your life is not over. You've decades of years ahead to rewrite your story. The world is huge, and it's so much bigger than Palo Alto and Stanford, and you will make a space for yourself in it where you can be useful and happy. But right now, you do not get to shrug your shoulders and be confused anymore. You do not get to pretend that we were there were no red flags. You've been convicted of violating me intentionally, forcibly, sexually, and with malicious intent, and all you can admit to is consuming alcohol. Do not talk to me about how sad, the sad way your life was upturned because alcohol made you do bad things. Figure out how to responsibility, uh, sorry, figure out how to take responsibility for your own conduct. Now to address the sentencing. When I read the probation officer's report, I was in disbelief, consumed by anger, which eventually quieted down to profound sadness. My statements have been slimmed down to distortion and taken out of context. I fought hard during this trial, and I will not have the outcome minimized by a probation officer who attempted to evaluate my current state and my wishes in a 15-minute conversation, the majority of which was spent answering questions I had about the legal system. The context is also important. Bronk had yet to issue a statement, and I had not read his remarks. My life has been on hold for over a year, a year of anger, anguish, and uncertainty, until a jury of my peers rendered a judge that validated the injustices that I had endured. Had Brock admitted guilt and remorse and offered to settle early on, I would have considered a lighter sentence, respecting his honesty and grateful to be able to move our lives forward. Instead, he took the risk of going to trial, adding insult to injury, and forced me to relive the hurt as details about my personal life and sexual assault were brutally dissected before the public. He pushed me and my family through a year of inexplicable, unnecessary suffering, and he should face the consequences of challenging his crime, of putting my pain into question, of making us wait so long for justice. I told the probation officer, I do not want Brock to rot away in prison. I did not say he does not deserve to be behind bars. The probation officer's recommendation of a year or less in county jail is a soft timeout. A mockery of the seriousness of his assaults, an insult to me and to all women, it gives the message that a stranger can be inside you without proper consent and he will receive less than what has been defined as the minimum sentence. Probation should be denied. 
uh, I told the probation officer that what I truly wanted was for Brock to get it, to understand and admit to his wrongdoing. Unfortunately, after reading the defendant's report, I am severely disappointed and feel that he has failed to exhibit sincere remorse or responsibility for his conduct. I fully respect his right to a trial, and even after 12 jurors un- or unanimously convicted him guilty of three felonies, all he has admitted to is ingesting alcohol. Someone who cannot take full accountability for his actions does not deserve a mitigating sentence. This is deeply offensive that he would try and dilute the rape with a suggestion of promiscuity. So by definition, rape is the absence of promiscuity. Rape is the absence of consent. And it perturbs me deeply that he can't even see that distinction. The probation officer factored in that the defendant is youthful and has no prior convictions. In my opinion, he's old enough to know that what he did was wrong. When you were 18 in this country, you can go to war. When you were 19, you were old enough to pay the consequences for attempting to rape somebody. He is young, but he's old enough to know better. As this is the first offense, I can see where the leniency would beckon. On the other hand, as a society, we cannot forgive everyone's first sexual assault or digital rape. It doesn't make sense. The seriousness of rape has been has to be communicated clearly, and we should not create a culture that suggests we can we learn that rape is wrong through trial and error. The consequences of sexual assault need to be severe enough that people feel enough fear to exercise good judgment even when they are drunk and severe enough to be preventative. The probation officer weighed in the fact that he had surrendered a hard-earned swimming scholarship. So how fast Brock swims does not lessen the severity of what happened to me and should not lessen the severity of his punishment. If a first-time offender from an underprivileged background was accused of three felonies and displayed no accountability for his actions other than drinking, what would his sentence be? The fact that Brock was an athlete at a private university should not be seen as an entitlement to leniency, but as an opportunity to send a message that sexual assault is against the law regardless of social class. The probation officer has stated that in this case, when compared to other crimes of similar nature, may be considered less serious due to the defendant's level of intoxication. It felt serious. That's all I'm going to say. What has he done to demonstrate that he deserves a break? He has only apologized for drinking and has yet to define what he did to me as sexual assault. He's re-victimized me continually and relentlessly, and he's been found guilty of three serious felonies, and it is time for him to accept the consequences of his actions. He will not quietly be ex- or excused. He is a lifetime sex registrant. That doesn't expire, just like what he did to me doesn't expire. It doesn't just go away after a set number of years. It stays with me. It's part of my identity. It has forever changed the way I carry myself and the way I live the rest of my life. To conclude, I want to say thank you. To everyone from the intern who made me oatmeal when I woke up at the hospital that morning, to the deputy who waited beside me, to the nurses who calmed me, to the detective who listened to me and never judged me, to my advocates who have stood unwaveringly beside me, to my therapist who taught me to find courage and vulnerability, to my boss for being kind and understanding, to my incredible parents who teach me how to turn pain into strength, to my grandma who snuck chocolate into the courtroom throughout this to give it to me. That's like an MVP grandma. Best grandma ever. My friends who remind me of how, how, to be, or how to be happy, to my boyfriend who's patient and loving, to my unconquerable sister who is the other half of my heart, to Alayla, my idol who fought tirelessly and never doubted me. Thank you to everyone involved in the trial for their, for their time and attention. Thank you to the girls across the nation that wrote, my, wrote cards to the DA to, forget, to give to me and for so many strangers who cared for me. Most importantly, thank you to the two men who saved me and I have yet to meet. I sleep with two bicycles that I drew taped above my bed to remind myself that there are heroes in this story. And that part, every time I read it, makes me want to cry. And I'm not done yet. <laughs> 
that we are all looking out for one another. To have known all of these people, to have felt their protection and love is something I will never forget. And finally, to girls everywhere, I am with you. On nights when you feel alone, I am with you. When people doubt you or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you, so never stop fighting. I believe you. As the author Anne Lamont once wrote, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. And although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today, you absorbed a small amount of light, a small knowing that you can't be silenced, a small satisfaction that justice was served, a small assurance that we are getting somewhere, and a big, big knowing that you are important, unquestionably, that you are untouchable, that you were beautiful, that you were valued and respected undeniably every minute of every day, and that you were powerful, and nobody can take that away from you. To girls everywhere, I am with you. Thank you. And then uh, just to wrap up my segment, also widely circulated at this time were comments by Mr. Turner's father, who lamented the fact that his son's future would be marred by 20 minutes of action outside of his 20 plus years of life. Mr. Turner. That statement has stuck with me for years. Oh, I know. Every time I think about it, I want to punch somebody. Oh, don't worry. I have one sentence left. Mr. Turner now lives outside of Dayton, Ohio with his parents. The end of this for now my real i have a lot of big issues with this as one obviously does right but the whole one about his father also is that like he's a piece of shit person okay and not a lot of the time like sorry not 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 a lot of the time but i know just as a generalization people are supposed to be a reflection of their parents yeah so then when his behavior came to light i was thinking like from like an not like an empathetic standpoint, but to like kind of put myself in like the shoes of his family. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, like if I was his mom, I would be mortified. I would be horrified. But then it came to light that his parents are also pieces of shit. Trash. Yeah. Literal trash. Like how can you say that about someone your son assaulted and like, and the fact that there is literal physical evidence for what he did, there was people who saw, there is not a doubt in anybody's minds how that had all happened. He still has so much pride and his parents have so much pride that they are like, they just completely deny that it even happened, right? They're like, oh, he was drinking. Did he sexually assault? Eh. Maybe. We don't know. Right. So anyways, so like I said, not very wheelie. Definitely very crimey today. And it is very... <sighs> it made me angry then. Still makes me angry. I will probably be angry about it forever. And I know for a fact the internet is probably still angry. Yeah. 100%. I've thought about that story like literally since it happened. And like I'm still really upset. Mm-hmm. I just... Like there's so much there that's infuriating that like and like to un- unbox everything about like that case as well it would take us like a few episodes to cover everything because there was a lot more details that i did not to miss because otherwise this would be literally 400 hours long literally so all right so is your story next my story next it's not <clears throat> much uh happier oh <laughs> nice so uh my story is about shannon Catherine watts who was born on January 10th in 1984 in New Jersey. She was the daughter of Frank Ruzik and Sandra Onada Ruzik. But her story really begins when Shannon met Chris. A mutual contact had sent her a Facebook prompt suggesting Chris as a possible friend. She deleted it. Two months later, she received a diagnosis for lupus and went through one of the darkest times of her life 
because things just kept getting scarier and scarier for her. Right. A North Carolina resident at the time, she quit her job of nine years, lost friends because they didn't understand that she looked perfectly fine, but felt horrible inside. She was, quote, in a really, really, really bad place, and she got a friend request from Chris on Facebook again. Okay. She said, oh, I was like, oh, what the heck, I'm never going to meet him, she said, except... Well, one thing led to another, and eight years later, they have two kids together, live in Colorado, and she said, quote, he's the best thing that ever happened to me. Okay. So, she said that she hoped her love story with Chris would inspire others. She said, no matter how hard life gets, no matter how low you feel, know that deep down in your heart, there's a purpose. There's a reason for everything. She added, because I got so sick, I let him in and he only knew me at my worst and he accepted me. I'm telling you, when I met Chris, I pushed him away. I gave him every excuse to run. I mean, he went to my colonoscopy. I tortured him. I rejected him. I pushed him away and time and time again. But when I canceled dates last minute, because that's how life is when my health challenges, you cancel things last minute. He stuck around. He stuck around because he was the one for me. So, after she accepted his face request, the couple were married for eight years. They had Mm -hmm. two daughters together named Bella and Celeste. Okay. And Shannon was also 15 weeks pregnant with a little baby boy that she was planning on naming Nico. Bella was born on December 17th, 2013 in Colorado. And Celeste was born on July 17th, 2015 in Colorado as well. Shannon was so excited to be able to have another child because of her battle with lupus. And she was determined to stay healthy and saw her kids as little miracles for her. Of course, yeah. Um, but... As stories on this podcast go, (laughs) things weren't as picture perfect as they might have seemed on the outside for this couple. In July 2015, the couple filed for bankruptcy protection claiming liabilities that totaled $448,000. And in 2017, Chris started to have an affair with a co-worker named Nicole Kessinger. Nice. So Kessinger graduated in 2013 with a Bachelor of Science and an emphasis on Oh, I thought for sure you were going to say high school and I was like no (laughs) (laughs) anyways continue with an emphasis on geology she also had an associate of science studying geological and earth sciences and geosciences from the community college of Aurora she worked her way up from being a bookkeeper to a field engineer over the last decade and most recently worked for a company called Hollingberg according to her LinkedIn Kessinger mainly or mainly remained in Colorado for most of her life, listing Forks Collins, Littleton, Denver, and Aurora on her LinkedIn page. She also listed Evansville, Wyoming, as a previous address. So Chris and Nicole met back in June of 2017, where Nicole was working in the environmental department with an anecdote with a company called Anecdarto Petroleum as a contractor, and Chris worked here as well as a full-time employee. Okay. We had just met, she said. She said that the two had just started a physical relationship in early July, but were taking it slow and never spoke about long-term plans. She never met any of Watts' friends or family. 
The two of each other, uh, the two saw each other four to five times a week, and except for when Watts went to visit family in North Carolina at the end of July. That's when Chris Watt called to tell Kessinger that his divorce was final and that he needed help finding an apartment for him and his daughters. Okay. So he told that uh, Nicole that he was in the midst of a mutual divorce and that he and his wife were working at the financial details and that's the only reason like the things were kind of slowing down except for the fact that there was no divorce. Right. He was lying to her this whole time. Of course, yeah. So while this was going on, all of this was further aided by a really strenuous relationship between Shannon and her mother and father-in-law. Okay. Shannon wrote on August 4th that Cindy and Ronnie had cut her cut off her and the girls because of the fury when she learned that they were serving ice cream with peanut chips to her children, despite one of her kids having a peanut allergy. Okay. So she's really pissed that they would give peanuts to a kid that they knew had a peanut allergy. Well, rightfully so. As a parent, you're going to be pissed. Yeah. So the couple subsequently blocked Shannon on Facebook and did not attend or even call their granddaughter on her birthday. At the same time, Shannon's own mother revealed that Chris's parents didn't even attend their wedding. Okay. So... The tension between Shannon and her in-laws reached a boiling point while she was in North Carolina for four weeks without Chris on a work trip, who was working and enjoying his time with his mistress back in Colorado. Hmm. Celeste and Bella were at their grandparents one evening during that vacation when Cindy served ice cream that allegedly contained peanut chips. So when Shannon found out about this, she texted Chris, you should call your dad and tell him... You did not appreciate your mom putting your daughter at risk today, nor do you like that she teased our girls. You should also say that you don't appreciate her saying that they have to learn they can't always get what they want. They're two and four years old. Watts sided with his wife in his response, writing, I will call him and tell him what I think about this. It's not fucking cool at all because it is the kids. I will set this right. Things later soured, however, when Watts... Watts arrived in North Carolina and his parents opted not to attend uh, Celeste's third birthday party. It was too much for Shannon. She went after her husband in a lengthy text and kind of the gist of part of what she said was, She's evil and willing to risk your daughter's life just to get under my skin. You and your dad are no different if you are okay with her behavior. Because they were really upset with the mother-in-law for everything she was doing. Well, right, because she knows that they have an allergy, is feeding them anyways, and then refusing to go to birthday parties. On top of the fact that... cutting them off completely. Right, and then the husband and the son are, like, they're just as guilty if you're not saying anything, right? Because then you're... Not, like, inciting that behavior, but you're showing her that that type of behavior is okay. Exactly. So she was really pissed. But there was a different version of events, however, from one of Chris's friends who said that Cindy called him crying after her fight with Shannon and that Chris told him not to worry because he was he was done with Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, that friend also said that the walk that Chris Watts and his mother were sweet-hearted people. Okay. So... On August 13th, pregnant Shannon and her two young daughters who were were reported missing from their home in Frederick, Colorado that Monday, and they had been considered endangered. The case gained nationwide attention and her husband, Chris, appeared on TV pleading for help finding his wife and kids. And I remember seeing this story all over Facebook because 
people thought they were missing. Right. And, like, the wife was 15 week, months pregnant. Or 15 months. 15 weeks That's a pregnant. long year. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long January. <laughs> <laughs> so, people were really worried. And I remember seeing this story all over social media. People were, like, coming... Like, if you have any information, come forward. Like, okay. Because nobody knew what happened to them. They just mm-hmm. disappeared out of thin air when Shannon came back from her work trip in North Carolina. Right. But just hours after police held a press conference asking for the public's help in finding the missing woman and her daughters, Chris Watts, who was 33 at the time, confessed to killing them. Chris was arrested late on August 15th by Frederick Police, who later confirmed in a press release that he was arrested. After this arrest, under police questioning, he allegedly said that he would tell the truth after investigators told him that they found out he was having an affair with a co-worker, according to the arrest affidavit. Right. So basically, he was like, oh, okay, now that you know this information, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> what an asshole. Yeah. So on August 16th... Scumbag. Scumbag! Scumbag! On August 16th, authorities announced that the bodies of his wife and children had been recovered on the property belonging to his former employer, Anadarko Petroleum. Okay. So they were found at his work. Shannon Watts' body was recovered in a shallow grave near an oil tank on the property owned by that employer, where... Chris Watts worked as an operator. Officials said that they found the bodies of the girls, four-year-old Bella and three-year-old Celeste, in an oil well near their mother's body. What a sick fuck. Chris admitted he killed Shannon after flying into a rage, as he claimed, uh, when he saw her strangling one of their daughters via baby monitor after he had told her he wanted a separation, according to the arrest of it, David. But in court earlier, uh, once that trial started, he pleaded guilty to nine charges, according to the prosecutors, five counts of first-degree murder, one count of unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and three counts of tampering with a dead body. In pleading guilty, he essentially admitted that his earlier explanation was a lie, that he just, like, made it up to, like, have some sort of reasonable excuse for killing his wife and children and like it came out that the only reason that he committed this murder was because he wanted to have a fresh start right because he's a scumbag yeah so but he ended up it's okay i can just erase the last 15 years of my life by murdering some people that doesn't have any consequences you know i mean not like i could actually just get a divorce and try and move on with my life if i'm actually this unhappy no i gotta murder them that kills me every time like i understand that like there's some things you can't solve by communicating with somebody but if you're not happy in a relationship and you want a divorce you don't kill somebody you gotta tell them you don't just like kill them and be like oh well i knew i couldn't talk to them about it you didn't even try but yeah Chris was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. Good. Scumbag. That's a depressing end to a depressing episode. It was a short and not sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, should I tell you guys a joke to lighten the mood? Oh, always. I am so ready. I gotta get one. Where do you imprison a skeleton? In a closet in a rib cage oh hey <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious so hilarious 
All right. I think that pretty much wraps up our episode for today. It's a bit longer than usual, but like I said, uh, there's some some things you can't just skip over. Exactly. And next Friday is actually Zero Discrimination Day, so we will be talking about... Hate crimes. (laughs) I stole the words right out of your mouth. You did. You got me there. (laughs) I can read minds. I don't know what to tell you. Well, you can follow us on social media. We've got Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're facebook.com slash wheelofcrime. And at Wheel of Crime on both Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at wheelofcrime at gmail.com. Tell us anything you like. Uh, also give us five five star reviews on iTunes, uh, at Apple Podcasts. I don't know anything. Five stars, please. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Wait, no, we're also available on Spotify. And or did Stitcher. we say that already? And Stitcher. Although, according to our statistics, I don't know if we have any listeners on Stitcher. <laughs> so I'm confused. Well, I don't listen to us on Stitcher. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, a, that's it for me, though. So bye. Bye. Bye.